Amen. Well, it was uh, on a cold January weekend in 1995. I had just finished my first semester at Wheat Ridge High School, uh, home of the farmers, Go Farmers. And uh, I was, uh, I just turned 15 years old. And uh, here I was in January. My youth group was getting ready to take a youth retreat uh, to a conference down in Colorado Springs. And I did not want to go. I didn't want to go. I had no desire in going. I had, I had no uh, intention of signing up, but somehow, I'm still not sure how it all happened, but somehow I got signed up for this event. And so before I know it, I am on a van full of teenagers heading down to Colorado Springs. And little did I know that this was the weekend uh, where God was going to do some, so, some incredible things in my own Life. In fact, he was going to completely change the trajectory of my life. You see, it was at this conference where I had this mysterious, supernatural, unexplainable, and very real interaction with God. You see, it was at, during this conference where, where I felt a distinct calling where, where God made it clear to me, he, he, he said, hey, Chris, this is what I want you to be doing with your life. That the plans I have for you are, are to engage what ministry looks like, that I've equipped you and, and I've wired you in a certain way that I want you to be uh, working in vocational ministry. And that was, that, that was just a, a complete change for me. I'd never, ever thought about being a pastor. I never wanted to. It wasn't something that I had been thinking about for a while. It was a, it was a total shift. And I actually kept the, uh, the armband from this conference. I, I took it home, and I knew that what I had just experienced uh, was, was a significant thing. I cut this off, and I, and I saved it in a file. And every now and then, I'll, I'll pull it out, and I'll think about that weekend uh, that God made it so clear to me what he was wanting to do with me. Fast forward about 10 years. I'm 25 years old, and I, uh, my wife and I, Renee, we decide I'm going to start seminary. And that began an 11-year journey. Now, most degree programs are two to three years, uh, but for me, 11 years, all right? I, I had a long break in the middle, about four years of a break, and I slowly worked my way through it. It was one of those times where, where, where you know, where, where something just seems so far off, like it's never going to come. And that's how it felt for, for so long. It's like, man, okay, I'm five years away. I'm, I'm four years away. It just felt so far away. I had many, many late nights, many late night French press runs to my kitchen uh, so that I could stay awake to read and to study. But then finally in 2016, I graduated seminary. And it was an amazing relief for me and my whole family. Now they're like, oh, we have a dad at home again. And he's not just studying all the time. Uh, but, but this tassel uh, is my graduation tassel. And every now and then I look at that and I think about God's faithfulness and, and moving us through that season of seminary and, and, uh, and what he did through that. And I think about our, our, my family and my church and how they supported me and encouraged me through that time. You, you know, here, here's my question. Before I, I get to my question, um, let me introduce myself. You just heard two big important pieces of my life. My name's Chris. If we have not met, I'm one of the pastors here at Crossroads Church. And you know, all of us are in a story 
We're all in a story. We all have our own life stories. In fact, if you look back on your life, you too could probably think of those significant events, those, those times, those people that, that, that had huge impact on you. And maybe you have some artifacts that, that, re, that remind you of that. What are some of those things for you? Is it a gift from a, a grandparent, a piece of jewelry or furniture or something like that? Or is it a, a handwritten letter that you got from, from a special someone or a book or whatever that might be? What are some of those artifacts that, that, that tell your story? Now, here's the thing is that everyone is, is in a story and we're all right in the middle of a story. And what that means is that we don't know what's happening next. I mean, we can plan as much as we want to, and planning is good. I'm all for planning. But the reality is, is that we have no idea what's going to happen when we turn that page. And 2020 is the perfect example. Nobody expected 2020 to be like it's been. It's been a total surprise for us. And in fact, it's only a matter of time before someone takes the story of 2020 and gets the movie rights and makes a movie out of what we have been experiencing now. But, but here's the thing is that when it comes to stories, could it be that people's life stories, not just their past, but, but where they're at right now, could it be that their stories are opportunities for us to come into someone's life and to, sh- and to point them toward Jesus? You see, we're in this series that we're calling Being the Church where we have been taking a few weeks now and and stepping back and looking and saying, okay, what does it mean for us to be the church? For for people who are familiar with church and and for people who aren't familiar with church, if you are here, uh, if you're watching and you're like, man, I don't know what this whole Christianity thing, following Jesus thing, church thing really looks like, this is a perfect series for you because we are stopping and looking at what does it really mean to be the church? Because for the last four months or so, our doors have been closed. We've not had weekend services at any of our campuses, and this is true for almost every church in the country. And what we stop is we, we, we realize that it is in God's sovereignty that, that we can trust that, that he's up to something. That, that it's no accident that every church in America closes doors at the same time, that God is up to something. And if we are going to say, what does it mean for us to be the church? We first have to stop and look at what does it mean for us? What is the purpose of the church? And that's simple. That's one thing. It's to glorify God. That's the entire purpose of the church is to glorify God here on earth. By what? By two things, loving him with everything that we have and loving people, loving God, loving people. And here's the beautiful thing about the church, building or not. We can do those two things. We can love God and we can love people, whether we have a building or not. And the first week of this series, we talked about how as believers in Christ, we are to follow his example and look for opportunities to serve people around us, whether that's a neighbor or a friend or someone at work, whatever that means. And whether that need is like a, a, a basic life necessity, or maybe it's just the need of, of a sense of belonging and we need to have them over for a barbecue and hang out on the patio or whatever that might be, that we look for opportunities to meet needs, that we see a need and we just meet it. Last week we talked about friendship and how as followers of Jesus that we ought to be the best kind of friend that anyone can have. That, that the way that, 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 that Paul laid out for us in Romans chapter 12, what, 
how we are to interact with each other as believers and with other people who are not believers, that we ought to be the best kind of friends that anyone can have. And this week we're talking about stories. We're talking about stories. And I'm not, and, and I don't mean just like gather around on a carpet and listen to someone's story time. I, I'm talking about engaging in conversation, uh, connecting to deep levels of the heart. And we're going to look at this story in the book of Luke. Uh, it's the third gospel in the New Testament, the third account of Christ. If you want to turn there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. And it's a story about a man named Zacchaeus. Now, if you uh, ever went to Sunday school as a kid, um, you probably know that Zacchaeus was what? He was a wee little man, right? Because we know the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing the whole song. Uh, but, but, but I just want to stop for a moment and think, what a, what a poor guy. <laughs> I mean, he, Zacchaeus gets sort of this bad rap to where he is so short um, that, that not only does everybody know it, but it gets written down, uh, copied in the book of Luke for billions of copies to be made and distributed all around the world. And everybody knows Zacchaeus as what? The wee little man. I mean, I think of Zacchaeus, when I picture him, I think of like Danny DeVito, who's just sort of running around, you know, this bald sort of crazy guy. That's just what I, I see. So I'm sorry if that ruins your picture in your mind about Zacchaeus, but, but that's how I see him. And so this interaction is with Jesus and Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, Verse 1, it says this, He, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. Now, let me just stop right there for a moment. Zacchaeus was a, a a tax collector. He wasn't just a, a tax collector. He was the boss. He was the chief tax collector. And here you notice that when Luke wrote this, he says he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, there's a huge redundancy happening right here that maybe we don't see uh, initially. Tax collectors were rich and everybody knew it. So for, for, for Luke to write this down, in the Greek, I think it literally says he was filthy rich. I just made that up. It's not true. But that's the truth. He was filthy rich. And he wasn't just rich. He was rich because of everyone else around him. And here's what I mean. You see, tax collectors, they worked for the occupying government in Israel of Rome. They worked for their own. So they were Jews working for Rome. So they, right off the bat, they were seen as traitors. And their job was to go around and collect taxes from all the people, from all these things. And, uh, and then they were allowed to charge, to overcharge everyone and then keep that for themselves. So then they would send to Rome what was Rome's and they would put in their pockets everything else. So this man was filthy rich because of who? His neighbors. You can tell that he was despised. And, uh, and in fact, I think about, if, if you think about it in today's terms, all right, just to, to help us further understand it, is let's say you live in a neighborhood that is 
completely run down. I mean, there's dead lawns everywhere. Some of the houses are kind of lean in. All of them are in desperate need of paint jobs. And, and it's just a, a rundown sort of place. But as you're walking your dog down the street, you come across this incredible, immaculate mansion. Okay, this is his house. And it's well kept and it just got a fresh paint job and a new roof. And, and there's a five car garage with some really sweet cars parked out front. And, and the grass is green. And not only that, he has one of those little fountains with a, with a concrete baby naked angel pouring water out of a jar into the fountain. And so you walk by his house and you're like, my money. That's my money that, that you used to, to, to buy that concrete naked baby angel pouring water in your fountain. You see, he was, he was despised because of this. And he was filthy rich from the money of his neighbors. Continuing on in verse 4, it says this. So, because he was short and because he couldn't uh, see Jesus through the crowd, he ran on ahead and he climbed up a tree, a sycamore tree, to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they, the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. One of the things we talked about last week was that Jesus often did things in order to gain the reputation that he was a friend of sinners. And this is one of those instances. In fact, it, the, the crowd didn't like it enough to where they were grumbling loud enough that it would then get passed on and written down that they were grumbling about that. Like, can you believe he picked that guy? They were probably also a little bit jealous. Like, why didn't he come to my house? But here Jesus says, Zacchaeus, let's go to your house. And so he climbs down the tree and they go to their house. And now we don't really know what all goes on at Zacchaeus' house. We kind of see the beginning and then the very end. But there's this whole ch chunk that, that's sort of missing. But, but, but here's how we can maybe fill in some of those blanks. You see, typical hospitality uh, back then was, was you would offer the person a foot washing to get all the dust off their feet that they've been walking around in all day long. And then you would give them something to eat and maybe a glass of wine. And then you would sit down on the, at the table, which was on the floor, um, and you would sit down on the floor and you would have a conversation. You would talk. Now, this may not seem like a big deal. Like, yeah, they had a conversation, but, but just think about it for a second. Jesus, the creator of the universe... The one who, who knit Zacchaeus together in his mother's womb. He knew everything about Zacchaeus. And yet what does he do? He goes to his house, sits down with him, and they talk. And he listens. I mean, I could just imagine Jesus going like, man, what do you think about that crowd grumbling that I picked your house? And, and man, how's things going for you? How's the family? Right? And just having this conversation. But the creator of the universe sits down and, and listens to Zacchaeus. You know, listening, it, I'm convinced it's a lost art in today's world. 
It's a lost art. Why? Because when we're having a conversation, we're not actually listening to what anybody's saying. We are simply thinking about what we're going to say next. Right there, if you're watching at home or wherever you're at, just raise your hand if that's what you do. Come on, be honest. We do this. We, we, especially if we're, we're disagreeing on something, we're, we're thinking about what we're going to say next. We're not actually truly listening. But, but here Jesus stops and he listens. And he gets a front row seat to Zacchaeus' story, to what's going on in his heart and his mind. And then the story continues on in verse 8. And it says this, And Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the, ha- the, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone or anything, if I've stolen from them, I will restore it to them fourfold. And so Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So here they are sitting down, enjoying a a glass of wine together and, and talking, and all of a sudden, Zacchaeus, I can just picture it sort of awkwardly. He just sort of shoots up. He stands up right there and he, and he just starts confessing, just sort of blurting out everything that's on his mind. Like, here, Jesus, this is all that I've done. Here's the things that I've done. I've defrauded people. I've taken money from them and I'm going to give it back. In fact, I'm going to give it back fourfold and I'm going to give my stuff away to those who are needy. Now, here's my, here's my question is, could it be that this is just what Zacchaeus needed. Let me explain. Could it be that, that a listening ear and a simple conversation over a glass of wine and a piece of bread is all that Zacchaeus needed in order to make this huge, monumental shift in his life? You see, Zacchaeus, nobody gave him the time of day. Nobody ever did because nobody wanted to be around him, but Jesus did. He, he showed him honor. He showed him love, acceptance, validation. You see, Jesus didn't condone anything that he was doing, but he also didn't walk into Zacchaeus' house and say, hey, whoa, 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 before we get started, let's talk about this. Let's talk about how you've stolen money from people. Let's talk about, you know, how you're being dishonest and, and that little baby uh, naked angel fountain in your front yard. You know, that's probably got to come down. I mean, he didn't do any of that stuff. He just went in and sat down and looked him in the eye and had a conversation about Zacchaeus' story. So what are some of the things that we learn about Zacchaeus? Well, I think that we can learn, we we know that that, that he was a lonely guy. Now, we don't know if he had any family around. We don't know who his best friend was. but, But my guess is that he probably didn't have any friends because nobody wanted to associate with him. They all despised him. He was lonely. He didn't have anybody to go for walks with or, or go hang out with at the lake and go do some fishing. It, it, he was alone. He, he was also probably uh, had a low self-image because of all of the, the grumbling and the talk that he was hearing from other people. He was also desperate. How do we know that Zacchaeus was desperate? You see, Jewish men, they did not run and they did not climb trees. These were things that children did. 
And if a Jewish man runs or climbs a tree, you know, man, something is on fire or someone is dying. Like that man is running. But here he is running to see Jesus. He was desperate. He was probably a little bit socially awkward because just of his lack of interaction with people and every interaction being negative because he's taking their money. We also know that he was ready for a change. He was ready for a change. He was welcoming a change. And here's the thing, is that if we look closely and if we listen intently, this is not too unlike our neighbors. I don't mean that our neighbors are rich in a poor neighborhood. What I mean is that if we stop and listen, that that our neighbors, our friends, those people that we work with, that the stories of many of their lives are just like this, where they are lonely, they have a low self-image, they're desperate, they're socially awkward, they're, they're ready for a change. Whatever it might be from, maybe they, they had a job loss. Maybe they just went through a divorce. Maybe they're struggling through some, some depression or, or loneliness or their finances are just completely out of control and they're, they're scared. Man, fear right now. I mean, look at our world. Fear is just rampant. And here's the thing, is that it's not too unlike Zacchaeus' story. And now, more than ever, do people need to see the real Jesus? And if we can stop for just a second and lean into those stories, we would get a chance to show them Jesus through the crowd. You see, stories are not just stories. They're opportunities. They're opportunities to connect and give someone just a glimpse of what Jesus is like. So how do we do this? What do we do? Let's, I'm going to get real practical. I'm going to get very, very practical. I'm going to give you four things, four things that you can do today if you want to. You can start them tomorrow, whenever you want to. If you want to follow Jesus and be the church, we are to lean into people's stories. These are the four things that you can start doing right now. The first one is that we pray, that we pray which sounds maybe a little cliche or a little bit of a Sunday school answer, but, but here's the thing. There's a difference between starting your day, like many of us do, and we get our coffee and we get our kids ready and we get breakfast and we go to work and we go about everything that we're doing. There's a difference between that and, and getting up and before our, he, our feet hit the floor, we stop and we say, God, what is it that you want me to see today? God, who do you want me to notice today? What are the things that you are working in? What are the things that you are up to? Someone once said that God is up to 10,000 things in your life, and we may be, we may be aware of three of them. You see, we stop and we, we pray, God, show me what's going on. Use me in some way today. The second thing we do is that we just, we simply pay attention. We pay attention to what's going on around us, to the grocery store clerk that we have a brief interaction with, but, but this grocery store clerk is stressed out because they just found out about their kid's learning disability, and they don't know how to, how to pay for the, the treatment that they need. Or, or the neighbor who's, whose brother just lost a child, 
Or the other neighbor who smiles and waves every time you, you pass by, but, but their marriage is barely hanging on by a, a thread. Or maybe that college student that you know that, that is in a degree program uh, because of their parents' uh, pressure and, and really deep down inside they want to go this way and they're, they're sort of at an identity crisis moment. They don't know what to do. You see, these are the stories of people around us, but usually we just see the surface. But when we stop and when we realize, man, there is so much going on underneath the surface, we need to pay attention to those opportunities. We need to pay attention. The third thing is that we need to create margin, both spatially and in time. Here's what I mean. I love how Jesus intentionally worked margin into his life. I mean, time and time again, you read stories where he's going around and then all of a sudden he just stops and he starts doing something completely different. The thing about Zacchaeus and his interaction is that it was not in his day planner. It didn't say, Zacchaeus, one o'clock. Oh, come on, boys, we got to get to Jericho because I'm going to meet with this guy today. No, he was going along, he saw a need, and he had the margin built in to go and sit with this man. You see, so many of us, we're so busy with life. We're so busy with, with everything that we got to do. And our, our, if it's not on the calendar, it's not happening. I mean, that's sort of how I function is it's got to be on the calendar or it's not happening. But, but here's the thing is that, man, we need to build in some margin into our life. And maybe that means saying no to some things or intentionally putting in things in our calendar where, where it's like zero time stuff, right? Like, I mean, I mean like white space stuff where, where it's like, hey, from this time to this time, I'm just going to, I'm not going to schedule anything. I'm just going to be aware of what God may be doing. But it's, it's, it's building in margin with our time, but also spatially. And here's what I mean by that. This sermon that we called the turquoise table, if you saw the title of it, it's about a lady. Uh, she, she writes this book called The Turquoise Table. And this lady desperately wanted to interact with her neighbors. She wanted to, to meet them, but, but she realized that everybody lives in their backyards, right? We come in, we close the garage door, we go to the backyard, or we stay inside. Nobody sees anybody else out front unless they're riding their bike or jogging or walking the dog or driving by, right? And so she thought, I'm going to try something different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some space, some margin in my front yard. And so she ordered a picnic table, she painted it turquoise, and she set it out in her front yard. And what she would do is she would sit out there, and as people would pass up by, she would strike up a quick conversation, maybe pour them a cold glass of water, have water out there for the dog to get a drink. And what she began to see is that this created just simple opportunities to have conversations. And the cool thing about the turquoise table is that it, it's exploded. Now it's all over the world. Uh, in many different countries, people who have bought turquoise tables and put them in their front yard. I've not seen any yet, uh, but if you see one, we're going on a road trip this week. And if, if we see one, we're going to stop and go sit at the turquoise table and just see what happens. I'm on the lookout for one. If you see one, let me know. But, uh, but, but it's this incredible idea. But guess what? It's real simple. I mean, it's a picnic table. And what she's seen, the fruit that's come out of the turquoise table is life-changing, eternally life-changing. She created margin. So what we need to do is we need to pray. We need to pay attention. We need to create margin, both spatially and in time. And four, we need to listen. 
When you get that opportunity, when you find yourself there in that moment that's unplanned, and here you are having a conversation, you need to listen. This is why we spend most of our time when we're training our Stephen ministers uh, throughout the the 50 hours of training that we do, mo- a lot of that is, is how to listen and listen well. Not just listening for information's sake, but listening to make the other person feel heard. There's a huge difference. You see, people are just yearning for someone to listen to them. In fact, this quote says this, It's been said that one of the most common reasons why people pay money to see therapists is to simply have their stories heard. Not just heard, but deeply heard, understood, and cared about. This is what people are longing for. They're paying money for someone to hear their stories. It's innate within us. We want to be known. We want other people to know us, to know what's going on with us. And so when we pray and when we pay attention and when we create margin, we have to stop and we have to listen Listen. Don't go into that conversation thinking about, well, how am I going to correct everything that they're doing wrong? How am I going to fix everything? How am I going to give answers to their hard questions? How am I going to critique their stories? But, but we simply listen in order to discover what's going on. And then guess what? Usually what they'll do is they'll ask you about your story. And then you get a chance to share about your story and maybe share with them an artifact You know, I think about that tree in Jericho. I think about that tree and I think, man, I bet after that day, every time Zacchaeus would be walking through town, he would stop and he'd look up at that tree and he'd say, man, that's the the tree. There it is. That's the tree that, that where my life changed. That's the tree that, that everything was upside down. That, that's the tree that, that God met me where I was and saved me. And perhaps, follower of Christ, perhaps you and I get a chance to, to be in that moment for someone. That moment where they'll look back in 10 years and go, man, I remember that moment that moment that this person listened to me and showed me Jesus through the crowd. You see, we pray, we pay attention, we create margin, and we listen. A good friend of mine had this happen just this past week. My friend works, at her work, there's this this other lady, and her name is uh, her name is Jane. We're going to call her Jane. I don't know what her name is. We're going to call her Jane. And, and one day, Jane came to work and is, is uh, starting to have a panic attack that she can't function. She's so upset and so anxious and, and so overwhelmed with her grief. She just cannot function. Well, well, here's a little bit of Jane's story. You see, Jane is married to a woman. Jane and my friend have worked together for a long time. They have a good working relationship, a a good friendship. But Jane's marriage is falling apart. And they're in the process of getting divorced. And so that morning, Jane comes to work and she is just overcome. And what happens next is incredible. What happens next is that another coworker comes into the room where my friend was sitting and says, hey, Jane needs you. She had no idea what was going on, 
No idea what was happening that day. She walks into the room to see Jane uh, on the verge of a panic attack. And what, what does she do? She sits down, scared to death, might I add. She told me, she was scared to death, praying the whole time. What do I do? God, what do I say? What am I supposed to, how am I supposed to react to this? I don't, I, I mean, I, there, there's so many things in this story that's messy and complicated. I don't want to s- seem like I'm condoning maybe bad behavior or, or anything like that. But, but God, what do you want me to do? And she listened. She sat down with Jane and she listened to her heartache, to her grief, to her questions, to what she was thinking about. You see, it was a lot like what Jesus did with Zacchaeus. You see, my friend just sat down and had a conversation. And no fireworks went off and no one stood up like Zacchaeus did and started confessing all that they did. I mean, nothing like no fire, no, nothing miraculous happened. But, but the, at the end, my friend asked Jane, she said, would you be okay if I prayed with you? And Jane said, absolutely, please do. And right there in the office, she said a short prayer with her. She was able to compose herself and they went, around, they went about their work. You see, we don't know what that's going to turn into, if anything, but, but maybe God would use that little seed that my friend planted when she was just able to, with compassion, come and sit down and meet her on her level into a messy, messy story and show the love of Jesus. You know, if you're watching this weekend and, and maybe you're not quite sure what it means to follow Jesus or uh, the love of Jesus or to be saved or to be a Christian or any of that, let me just say to you that, man, Jesus loves you so much that he wants to just come and sit with you. He wants to come and sit with you and have a conversation because he loves you. If, if, if that's you, we want to uh, be here for you to answer any questions you might have. Just text the name Jesus to this number on the screen and someone will get back with you and, and talk with you and pray with you, answer any questions you might have about what it means to follow Jesus. Would you pray with me today? Father, we thank you so much. First, we thank you for your faithfulness in the past that we can look back and see how you've worked through our stories, through the good times, through the difficult times. God, you are faithful. And though we don't know what's happening tomorrow, we know that you will still be good, that you will still be trustworthy. So we trust you in tomorrow. And God, I pray that, that, that as we move out of this place, that you would help us God, to find, to pay attention to what's going on, to those stories around us, to create margin for those stories, and that when we do, that we would lean into them, that we would offer a listening ear, care and compassion, that they might see you through the crowd. Father, it's, it's, an, it's amazing to me the way that you love us by sending your son to die in our place. We thank you, and it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.